Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 141st show. Today's guest is Ed Shambliss, author of The One-Legged Stool. I love this book. I love the conversation we're going to have. And I'm uh, hoping the audience will type in some great questions uh, for you to answer. And I will read those questions to you. So we're thrilled to have you. So, Ed, let's start off. Why did you even write this book? Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I've spent about 30 or so years in the marketing and advertising space. And over the over the last few decades, I've noticed more and more that my clients started making these really horrible decisions, um, decisions that would allow them to pay shareholders a lot of money right now, but they'd be robbing their future success by doing so. Uh, it was one of those situations where you keep having meetings with your client and you have this great idea and everybody's nodding their head saying, yeah, that's a great idea. That'll that'll drive sales and it'll also build our long-term brand. And then we all look at each other and go, and it's never going to happen, is it? No, because <laughs> I have a quarterly earnings call next week and I need to cut the budget again so I can fund that. And it just got to the point where you can only bang your head against the wall so many times and shooting yourself in the foot again and again and again. So I decided to step away from my career and really dive into how we got here and what forces drive those sort of short-term decisions instead of investing in the future value of a company. Yeah, and and you give great examples in the book. So let's talk about why did you choose this symbol of the stool? Um, I, I think everybody sat in a wobbly chair. Uh, and the unease you feel when you start rocking back and forth. And it's, it's, a, it's a quite guttural feeling to realize that sturdiness requires not just one element. It requires all the elements to be working together. And that's a perfect analogy for the world of business where you need more than just shareholders. You also need customers, you need employees, and you need a community to, to be located in. So it takes the whole ecosystem. I think also when you define shareholders, you're not talking about you and I and everybody who's listening here. You're really talking about the money managers themselves and them getting a good return so they keep assets coming in, right? I mean, you're not really talking because most of us, we do get one a good return, but at the end of the day, we really care about what happens to individuals. It's true. And, and I think it's it's a matter of, of scale and volume. Uh, the money managers, especially those that act as a fiduciary, primarily define that in terms of dollars and cents. When in reality, average people like you and me care more about just money. We, we, we like money. I like money too. But I think beyond that, there are other currencies that we pay in. We pay in how we treat other people. We pay in how we treat our environment. Uh, and, and these other currencies that we pay in and get paid in need to be taken in consideration too. So before we jump into the book, why don't you give the audience a little bit about your own professional background? Sure. Um, I've spent about 35 years in the advertising and marketing space, first on the creative side uh, as a copywriter. 
but then I, I gradually realized that while I was a good copywriter, I was not a great copywriter. Uh, and I moved more into the strategy space and realized that was my true calling. So I've moved into strategy a long time ago and, and got a master's degree in integrated marketing communication, trying to get all the elements of a, of a company and a brand to work together. Uh, I moved out here to Los Angeles about 20 years ago uh, as a mid-level account guy and worked my way up to CEO of the agency. Uh, and then I started having these distressing meetings more and more and more and decided to really step away from being a CEO for a while to figure out how business got here and see if we could shed some light on how to fix it. Uh, you write that any paradigm created by central authority only works for a few and not the majority. What are you trying to tell us here? Again, it's, it all goes back to that ecosystem. Um, if one group is over-dominating the conversation and over-dominating the overall system, the system really begins to serve their needs and their beliefs more than everybody else. If you look back to the Middle Ages and look at the church, the church dominated life in the Middle Ages. Or if you look at socialist and communist countries where the bureaucracy says, well, here's what you're going to, here's your job, here's what you're going to make, and oh, here's, here are the products that are for, for sale. It, it just never works. The world is too complicated. And I don't care how smart you are, you're never going to figure out what everybody needs. Yeah, you also write uh, that um, private enterprise is better. Talk about that. Sure. Uh, in contrast to a centralized authority, free enterprise and private enterprise are by definition decentralized. Uh, it, it allows individuals like you and me to be rewarded by figuring out a solution to a human problem. Uh, there's no one telling me what my company should do. I'm beholden to the customers because they're going to express their desires to the marketplace, uh, but also the marketplace for employees. If I'm a company that's that's making the world a better place, I'm going to attract people who are passionate about doing that type of work as opposed to just doing it for a paycheck. And the same thing for investors, because uh, making a profit, I don't think is ever a goal. It's a reward for being successful at a different goal. And I think companies are really here to solve problems. Now, what, what do you think about the pushback on investors who do want to uh, hold count companies accountable related to the environment, uh, social issues? I mean, a lot of, you know, you hear, um, people who are providing capital at Vanguard or whatever saying, listen, that's not, that's not why we gave you money was to, for you to hold these people accountable. I just care about getting a good return on my money. So I don't need you to put your social um, thoughts into this. What, what, what's your take on that? I'd say that they're, they're, they're looking far too short term and that profit only comes from satisfying uh, human needs. Uh, last time I checked, customers are the sole source of revenue, not investors. Investors are absolutely necessary. They're one of the legs of the stool. But if a company can't satisfy customer needs, then the company's not going to be successful. There's not going to be a profit and the investors are going to be unhappy. So it's one of those situations where if a company can satisfy human needs, it'll be profitable. So it's actually good for investors. The trick is People nowadays don't just care about the product they hold in their hands. They care about how it was made and what impact it's having on the environment and even other people halfway around the world. 
So I think the smarter companies and the more profitable companies are the ones who are trying to make a great product, but make it in such a way that it satisfies those other ancillary needs that people have. Business leaders always complain about government interference. And, and I know you heard this a lot as oh, yeah. CEO of that company, because I hear it a lot from all the companies that I work with. You write government involvement can be a plus. Please explain. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's important to take a step back and realize why companies exist in the first place. Uh, companies were created by people, us, society. Uh, we're the ones who came up with the, with the concept of a corporation and we allow it to be chartered. And we give it a lot of power and a lot of resources. Uh, and th they, can, they can live forever. They can be trillionaires, these, these companies. And by giving them life, we gave them life in exchange for making human life better. So the fact that we've, we've given life to these companies means that they need to live up to their end of the bargain. And I think government can be a great force for that because government represents all of us not just investors, not just shareholders, not just the wealthy, not just the poor. They represent all of us. So I think government at, at its best can be a great set of guardrails to remind companies that they're there not just to benefit a few people, but to benefit all of us. And I think the way they do that is not to micromanage. I hate government when it starts telling me how to do my business. At the same time, I think they're at their best when they say, Here's a goal. Here's something we need private enterprise to solve. That something's going to benefit everybody. And then they let the free market decide the best way to solve that problem. That's what I think government does best. What, as you write, is specialization? Um, I, I, I look at you, Mark, and I look at the other people joining us, and, and none of us are good at everything. None of us. We're all good at something where we excel. And private enterprise is wonderful in that it allows each of us to choose what we want to do and choose which products and services we want to consume. So specialization allows me to be rewarded for more and more expertise. And the world has gotten more complicated and more interconnected. And it relies on people who are more and more specialized. And it's the same for companies. There are companies out there that specialize in very thin slivers of humanity and the population. But by doing that, they're able to better understand those people and better solve it. So specialization, I think, is key because it leads to deeper understanding. But you also have to have the interconnectivity between specialists to understand how the bigger picture works. How much influence does social media have on a company's behavior and business decisions? I think it, I think there's a tipping point. Uh, for the most part, nowadays, uh, business is so dominated by financial goals and financial pursuits. And most investors I know don't go out there and, and use social media to post their likes and dislikes. That's more of a, of a conversation of the masses. I think the desires of investors nowadays in the world of shareholder primacy is such that it's innately understood. Make as much money as you can and pay it to me as quickly as you can. However, when the masses posting on social media reach a certain critical mass, it can damage 
the company's brand and that can damage sales and that can damage profit. And that's when shareholders and investors start to get nervous. So I think it's a secondary metri metric. It's something that investors watch. And when things go south, they begin to get nervous and start taking their money out. Yeah, as, as we're seeing how Elon Musk is having an influence on, on multiple industries, yeah. You know, uh, in Twitter's particular case, uh, there's a lot of advertisers that don't like his politics or the way he's rejiggered uh, Twitter. And then the same folks who might be investing in uh, his car company are looking at and saying, hey, he's got his eye off the ball here. And now that's impacting our other investment in him. So we don't care if he's the smartest guy on the planet. Uh, what we care about is, hey, is he taking a risk with our reputation, right? I mean, not, we're seeing that in today's Wall Street Journal, they talked about a, a slew of advertisers who've pulled out of uh, Twitter yeah. that could actually push him into bankruptcy. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think there's a big shift going on there. And like you said, it's not just with Twitter. I was talking to someone the other day and they're looking at their Tesla through a different viewpoint nowadays. They used to be a huge Tesla fan, but they're kind of worried that Tesla, i.e. Elon Musk, is now damaging the Tesla brand and even the SpaceX brand based on his behavior at Twitter. Yeah, it seems like he's, uh, and we'll circle back to it, it seems like he's a little bit out of control. Do the major papers like the New York Times and Washington Post and major news networks have much of an influence on corporate decision making today? I mean, you've spent a lot of time in this space. Yeah, I, I, I think they still do. Obviously, they don't have as much of an impact as they used to. Um, the fragmentation of media started long, long before this conversation, and it, it made everything a little bit less important on its own. But again, we, we live in a world of, of finance-driven decisions, and the mainstream media knows that. Uh, look at the number of, of financial publications out there and in financial, especially uh 24 seven uh, cable stations that cover that. So I think they still have a voice, but I, I don't think it's as, as big a one as it used to be. I think companies are, are not beholden to them for information as much as they used to anymore. Yeah, I, and their numbers have gone down dramatically. I yeah. mean, because there's so many places to get the news, not uh, necessarily trusted no. uh, sources. People picking a lot of sources that just, you know, you hear, you'll go to some party and somebody will say, I read this on the internet. And you read, oh, like from the Post or the Times or somebody credible. Oh, no. And they're like pushing it off as that it's legitimate. Right. And, and I think business people need to know the veracity of the information they're making decisions on. The, the decisions are huge and very important often. And they're not going to get that information from TikTok. They're, they're going to get it from a more trusted source. What do you think of now um, even Facebook saying that they're not going to correct whether something's right or wrong, just let it fly, kind of like Twitter's doing? I, I think it's a really interesting and somewhat scary world we're, we're getting more and more into. And I think there's a difference between facts and opinions, too. And both are valid. Both move people. But I think it's going to be very interesting to see which way the culture goes and if there's going to be a resurgence in people be, being willing to pay for information that they know is a little bit more vetted um, as opposed to rumor and innuendo. The world's gotten so complicated. 
it's very difficult for any of us to understand uh, understand a great part of it. So instead, we just sort of narrow our focus and and don't try to understand the bigger picture. We understand the few feet in front of our face. And that creates a, an interesting environment where people can influence us with information and it's not necessarily true and it could actually be harmful to us. Then again, it can be very beneficial to us. So I think we're entering a little bit more of a, of a Wild West period where information, the validity is, is subject to the user. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's sad when you have to pay. It reminds me that they took like a page of AT&T's playbook, which is if you didn't want your number private, you had to pay them. Why would right. I be having to have my number public when I never asked you to do it? Right. And, and now they're using that in reverse, but you're like, well, well, why should I have to pay for you guys to do your job, which is to only post stuff up there that is legitimate, regardless of, you know, right or wrong. Yeah, and regardless of, of left or right or politics. Yeah, or anything, yeah, of course. They're, they're, and I think it's it's a logistical problem too, is, is, you know, billions of people posting, you can't fact check everything. Um, especially with only 7,500 employees that got let go at Twitter gone, it's, it's harder and harder to do that. So it's a little bit more of, of just an open town hall discussion. And I, I put a lot of onus back on the people participating to realize they have power. They have a, a megaphone that they're talking through. It's not the old day of just sitting in the back. And I think you look at this, especially with younger people who would say something to you on social media that is hugely insulting and hugely damaging to the other person. They'd never do it in person, but they're anonymous. They're hiding behind it and they're typing instead of talking. And I think that um, that humanity is having a hard time staying up with the ethics and the the cultural rules around the technology. We don't know how to how to behave in it. We don't really understand the consequences. Well, Elon Musk clearly um, didn't like it when people started to use his name or pretend they were him. So his whole premise went out the window when he was actually negatively affected. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's it, 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 it's it's a quasi public institution, Twitter, <laughs> and uh, billions of people doing it. And there's a lot of power there. And you have a very rich man and money translates into power into power. And he I get the feeling he doesn't really know what he wants to do with it. Uh, I, I get a feeling he's just throwing it up there and seeing what sticks. Yeah, apparent, apparently so to the detriment of the world. You uh, wrote that a company's success depends on interconnected ecosystem of stakeholders, including customers, employees, shareholders, mm -hmm. communities themselves. What do you mean by that? And does one have more influence uh, on this than another? Sure. And, and, and again, I think you look at what business and, and companies really are, which is they're enterprises that require a lot of different ingredients in their recipe. Um, without customers, you have no revenue. Without employees, you don't come up with the products and solutions and you can't manufacture them and deliver them. Without investors, you don't have the capital that's necessary for growth. And without communities, you don't have a place to be located. So I think they're all necessary ingredients. Starting in the 1970s, um, the economic revolution of neoconservatism really pushed us into a, a simplification of that to say, it's all about efficiency. 
and it's all about shareholders. So we can focus on maximizing shareholder value. All the inefficiencies will be removed from the system and everybody will benefit. And that made a lot of sense and it worked for a while, but now putting shareholders first and putting efficiency first, you can only cut so much fat off of a steak before you start cutting meat. And we're 50 years into this. And so now we're to the point where we're robbing Peter to pay shareholders. We're taking money from future investments just to pay a stronger short-term dividend or increased share price nowadays. And I think that makes it increasingly hard to be genuinely organically profitable in the future. So it takes the whole ecosystem, but to only focus on one member of the ecosystem is just, it's, it's self-defeating. Yeah, when you see share buybacks, um, studies mm. I've read and, and my own observation is that that never works out. I mean, ask GE how well that's worked out, all the billions of dollars they did buying back their own shares and how much they could use that cash now. Yeah, and and, and I, I think you have to say it, it didn't work for the company and it didn't work for most people, but it worked really well for the investors. Um, In the short but, term. Yeah, in the short term. And and it's important to remember that CEOs and senior management are huge shareholders. Their compensation is tied up mostly in shares. And so it it helped them out too. But I agree. It's it's I don't think it's ever, I don't want to say it's an the the, the rule is supposed to be a, a stock buyback should only happen when you can't do something else with the money. And I think there's a lot of things companies could do with that money that would make them more profitable in the future. I thought it was interesting that you wrote about being a one-person intervention to help a company correct itself. Please talk about that and how that works. Sure. Um, if you look at companies and, and corporations, again, that's something, it's an entity that that society created. So they're sort of like our children. And when our children are misbehaving, we need to step in. Um, and it's, it's interesting because... It, it's real tempting to classify people by the role that they play in our lives. We know people that are our friends. We have people that are our families. But the truth is, we all play lots of roles in our lives. Um, and customers want more than a bargain. Employees want more than a paycheck. Investors want more than a return on their investment. And, and communities want more than tax revenue. We're all human beings and we all want more broader paybacks. We want art, we want music, we want a just society. We want a good environment for our children and our grandchildren. So we have a lot of power when we put all of those roles together. And if we buy products as customers, if we buy products and reward companies that take care of our broader interests, or if we're investors and we invest in companies that take care of our broader interests, or if we're employees who only work for companies that take care of our broader interests, then the groundswell of all these roles working together in harmony can really change the way companies behave and get them back to their original purpose, which is to help all of us, uh, not just investors. Seems to me that uh, Twitter is exactly the opposite example as you comment on because then we've talked about they all hit all the interconnected systems you wrote mm -hmm. about and no one group has total dominance over the success or failure of the business. Um, share your more of your observations about Twitter and Meta and how they're impacting this. Sure, it's it, it's a, they're obviously very complicated, so it's going to be difficult to to sum them up here in a few minutes, but. 
I think Twitter and Meta and other social companies out there have grown greatly because they realize the whole ecosystem is important. They spend a lot of time taking care of their employees. They create um, services that their users will find really helpful. And when they focus not just on growth, but on profitability, they can really have a good payoff for the investors that gave them the money in the first place. So I think they've grown quickly and, and very large by focusing on the entire ecosystem. That said, we all need to remember that Twitter and Meta users aren't customers. We're the product. We don't pay for those services. And the real customers are advertisers. And I think they were properly focused on creating a way of gathering people together where they could be bundled and sold to advertisers. So advertisers could show messaging to them and try and get exposure. They're really good at that. However, I think also there's a bit of a misalignment there in that you're, if your customer is another company and human beings are the product, the human being can end up getting damaged a little bit. If you, if you look at the analogy of cigarette companies in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, they knew very well that cigarettes were causing cancer, but they didn't do anything about it. And it's the same thing with Twitter and, and, and Meta even back when they were Facebook, they know the downside psychologically and socially of their social media products, but they aren't doing anything about it because their concern is the advertiser. Their concern is the investor. So they don't do a great job all the time of thinking through the long-term consequences to every member of the ecosystem. They're focused on the short-term benefits of the ecosystem. And I think that information will come out more and more like it already has. And there'll be a, a, a backlash against them, which is, again, bad for everybody in the ecosystem. Early in the book, you throw up the question about who do we hold accountable? Naturally, we think we should hold the CEO accountable mm -hmm. uh, because, as Truman said, the buck stops with the leader. What if there is a rogue part of the company or an individual and the CEO knows nothing about it? Uh, should they still be held accountable, responsible because they didn't put in the right safeguards? Absolutely. Um, a CEO is not just responsible for their direct chain of reports. They're really responsible for setting the tone of what the company and what the enterprise is all about. So it doesn't matter if they weren't aware of it. They're the ones that are responsible for crafting expectations and crafting the culture. Obviously, that is necessary. That can only be done if you have a great infrastructure and a great hierarchy working with you to transmit those. Um, when I'm a CEO, I always believe that it's my job to personify how our company can serve humanity. Because serving humanity is creating value that people will pay for and will lead us, allow us to be profitable and will pay off our investors and contribute to the community. And if we take our eyes off the prize of serving humanity, then it's up to everybody in the company to make up their own rules, to say, well, I don't think that's what our job is. I think our job is to do this or that or the other. And it leads to a real disintegration of that single entity and that single purpose. Isn't that what the, you know, before Elon Musk bought the company, isn't that what people were uh, upset with that they felt like, oh, it's uh, Twitter's become too left-wing. Uh, it is making um, social decisions for people 
and hence why this needs to be corrected, right? I mean, isn't that what we were hearing before? Sure, but uh, again, I don't expect uh, any company to have a monopoly on serving everybody in the world. I think Twitter grew to the size it did because of the product it was offering. And it selected a certain customer base and a certain employee base and a certain investor base and certain communities to be a part of. And that's fine. They responded to Twitter in that form. Twitter, I think, will change significantly. And it will attract a different group of stakeholders. It'll attract different customers, different employees, different investors. And that's fine. Um, if people don't like the way a product is, this is a free society and a free market. Come up with a competing product that's better. Uh, of course, 18% of ethical lapses, uh, were those CEOs uh, companies also not performing well? And I mentioned this because I remember when Bobby Knight was the coach of Indiana and they fired him. And I always remember the trustees saying this. They asked him, would Coach Knight be fired if he had won a national championship in th the last three years? And amazingly, he answered honestly, he said, no. This is after Coach Knight had uh, put his hands around a kid's neck and was choking him Yeah, uh, and then punched him. So... You know, it, or these, you know, uh, CEOs getting let go because, hey, it'd been all right if you acted like that, but you didn't perform. What are we seeing? I think what we're seeing is an increased transparency uh, based on information technology. Uh, corporate walls are turning into corporate windows and everybody can sort of see what you're doing. Uh, it's not the old days where you, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that wasn't the first time Bobby Knight choked somebody. That what made the difference, though, is that it was witnessed and it was put out there and it gained traction in a critical mass environment. So I don't think that they're disconnected. I think rather they're very connected. Ethical behavior nowadays is very public and it can reach that critical mass where it begins to affect the company's reputation and that affects sales and that affects performance. So I don't think they're intertwined. I think we have moved into an area, though, where CEOs aren't just uh, judged on their financial performance. I think they're judged on their behavior and, and the decisions they make. And I see that as a positive sign because it gives us more insight into what the company is doing to generate uh, those profits. None of us want a company that creates poison uh, to make a profit and then pass it off as candy to children. I'm just an extreme example. But knowing how it is and what the ingredients are in that packaging, really, as, an, as a consumer or an employee or investor or even a, a member of, of society, it's really important for us to know how they're getting there. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I reading the story this morning in the Wall Street Journal that there's a whole slew of advertisers that pulled out for the, um, because of the politics of Twitter. But yet there were mainstream advertisers like Disney who are sticking with the platform mm -hmm. and they're looking at, Hey, I don't really care about the politics. I just care about the rate of return uh, for us on this advertising. Right. What, what, what would you tell Disney about this? I mean, what would your advice be to these guys? I don't have enough visibility into, into individual company goals and, 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 and plans, but I would say that, we're sort of in a bit of a of a of a news cycle right now where Elon Musk and Twitter is is dominating the news feed by what did he do today? What did he do today? 
and it is creating a lot of bad bad press. And a lot of companies are concerned about the, the what, what they call brand safety. What is my brand next to? Is my ad next to something that's that's distasteful? And a lot of companies are being very quick to pull out of that. Other companies, I think like Disney, are looking at uh, harder facts and saying that, well, we're still reaching all these people and these people that we're reaching aren't the problem. It's it's the over it's the overarching frame around that conversation that is a little bit disconcerting. And there being a little bit more wait and see to, to see what's going on. Uh, right now, Twitter's a mess. And we all know that everybody, especially investors, hate uncertainty. And Twitter right now is full of uncertainty. And I, I think Elon needs to figure out what he's going to do and, and just, okay, just be that and put it out there. Then everybody will know. It's like it's like when the Fed does a rate cut. There's a lot of speculation up front, but when it becomes certainty, people can relax and know that's what's going to happen. It's interesting that uh, Kyrie Irving, the basketball player, uh, said a, a you know a promoted this anti-Semitic um, documentary, right? And uh, Nike, surprisingly, uh, Phil Knight said we're dropping them. You know, we just don't abide by that. And it's costing them millions of dollars right. uh, to say it because that, that brand is very, very popular. But at the same time, Amazon's saying that they're not going to take that off of Amazon regardless of the untruths of it because, hey, that's up to people to make that decision. Yeah. It, it seems that they're at, at, at cross purposes. One is making a decision. I don't care how much money he makes for us just not acceptable. The other one is saying, I don't think we should be legislating this. Right. It, it, yeah. It, 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 two seemingly massive equal companies taking entirely different responses just to me shows that they have an idea of what their ecosystem will tolerate and what it won't tolerate. Uh, and that's okay. Customers, employees, investors, communities, we can all make decisions based on information. We talked a little bit about transparency earlier and how transparency is so important because I don't just make decisions based on what the packaging of the product says nowadays. I want to know more about how it was made and what the company is doing uh, as it makes this product before I consider buying it. I want to know, I want to know consequences and side effects like any, any pharmaceutical I might buy. I want to know the side effects. So I, I think it's really interesting to see that. And it puts the case for transparency and getting the truth out there instead of making decisions based on speculation, hearsay, and, and just what the news cycle is saying. How important is transparency when running a company? And how are you defining transparency? Uh, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. I think transparency is increasingly important uh, in today's world where we can see so many things. Uh, I'd rather go ahead and get the truth out there rather than having a partial truth get out or a lie get out there. Uh, again, my job as a CEO is to be a constant frame of reference. Uh, and I think that we want to put out all the costs and all the benefits and let people decide if we're proud of what we're doing. Great. We'll attract people who are rewarding us for how we're doing things, not just what we're creating. So I think transparency is hugely important. Could you please tell us, which I thought was a great story, I really like this story a lot, about the chairman of Royal Dutch Shell and uh, 
which you wish uh, leaders always did. I mean, I thought it was like out of a movie. Yeah, it's it's it was a wonderful story, and it actually was featured in a documentary uh, called The Corporation. Um, and the story goes something like this. Uh, Sir Mark Moody Stewart was the chairman of Royal Dutch Shell a Petroleum Company back in the 1990s. And one day he and his wife, Judy, were at their small little college cottage out in the English countryside when about 25 young protesters showed up and they climbed on the roof and they hung up this banner that said murderers. And some of them were wearing masks and they had another banner that said Earth first. So they were clearly there to protest. So they were expecting a confrontation, but uh, Sir Mark uh, did something amazing. He and his wife walked outside and they were very civil. They said, hi, what are you protesting? What do you believe in? And it took all the wind out of the sails of the protesters and they sat down and it's, it's amazing because the, the, the Moody Stewarts actually served them tea on their lawn and they all sat down and they talked about what was important to them. And they all discovered that they're all human beings and they all care about equality and justice and the environment. And they realized the problem wasn't the chairman of Royal Dutch Shell, it was the fact that it was a company and the company was making th these decisions based on a narrow set of goals. So it shows that I don't think human beings are inherently evil, even CEOs, that what we're working on is our priorities and it's our decisions based on what we believe we should be doing that end up causing harm. Great story, though. I did. I loved it. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear it was a documentary. How do you feel about these substantial fines on companies, but often the leaders unscathed uh, and employees lose their jobs? You know, you see it's like $300 million fines and all of a sudden they like, lop off a bunch of people and the CEO is still at the top, the board's still fine, they're all collecting good fees. Do you have a recommendation for a better alternative? Uh, to me, again, I think it has to do with priorities and there's a misalignment there. Um, as long as leaders believe it's their job to pay every penny possible to shareholders and that money is the focus, then there's going to be a misalignment with what people believe is how you should behave in society. If a human being acted the same way a lot of companies do, they'd be declared a psychopath because they lie and they're manipulative and they're perfect in every way in their own minds. And that's what they're trying to do. So I think that really we need to look at how we behave as a company uh, and, and try and better align the laws, the rules, the regulations of how people should behave in society with the expectations of companies. In other words, let's let companies who are unnatural persons, they're legal persons, let's expect them to act more like natural persons too. Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon has cost BP, I couldn't believe the fit figure, $54 billion. Uh, what do you think of the leadership of the platform and maybe corporate was thinking by not spending, I think I saw in a documentary, it was like $6 million, you know, normal maintenance upkeep that they yeah. just pushed off. Yeah. And you wonder, was it pushed off because, hey, it would have fallen on, on the end of the quarter and they would have had to report this $6 million, It would have changed the price of the stock, whatever. So what do you think was when they were thinking about the risk reward for this? What was going through their minds? Again, I think it's it's short-termism. 
it's the this, this the it's the certainty that I have a quarterly earning call and I need to have certain performance metrics that I need to have out there. That's going to happen. What's going to happen down the road if I don't do maintenance on an oil platform is questionable. I, I mean, if you look at it, yeah, but maybe that's not going to land on my watch. So if I can take that money that I would put into normal maintenance and instead extract it, value extraction to pay shareholders, then that made sense to me in the short term. That's what society expects companies to do. But if you step back for a second and realize that BP, just like Royal Dutch Shell, just like Facebook, just like Twitter, they're all massive companies that we society has given a lot of power and resources to. They've misused that. BP played a huge role in the death of 11 people. They created an oil slick on the ocean the size of Oklahoma, and they damaged the economy, the tourist economy and the fishing economy for over a decade in this area. We trusted them with power and money. We trusted them with these resources. And they decided to rob the future to pay the present. Maybe not amazingly, but certainly disappointing. Exxon's board knew in 1982 in your book uh, about the damage burning fossil fuels would do, but didn't act on it. Uh, many boards, especially venture-backed and family companies have friends and family on them that are beholden to the CEO for the position. I've worked with people like this, you know, yeah. get a nice fee, kind of want to go along uh, with the flow. Public companies pay these guys a lot, people a lot of money, and they become like politicians. How can society hold these uh, people more accountable? I, I think it's a real interesting subject. It's not just publicly traded companies. Like you said, it's private. Uh, it's it's venture backed. It's family owned businesses that, that suffer these problems. And I think it's important to remember that the CEO reports to the board, not the other way around. Um, and I think the board is supposed to be objective. They're supposed to represent uh, society in an indirect way and make sure that the company is taking actions. Uh, again, I think a big problem is the fact that so many board members uh, are huge shareholders, just like CEO compensation is primarily share-based right now. It makes share price the inevitable conclusion of any decision is what is it going to do to our share price? But even if you have a board that is shareholder focused, and even you have a CEO who is shareholder focused, as we've seen, you can, you can get at companies' financial prospects through the other members of the ecosystem. We as customers, we as employees, and we as neighbors can take a huge interest in a company and change its behavior that way by getting its attention by damaging revenue and damaging profit. You wrote about drug companies focusing their R&D on products with the biggest margins and which shareholders always like and venture investors, everybody. One part of the human race wants them to focus on doing good and is fine with them making money without forcing people into bankruptcy or ignoring their medication. The other side feels strongly that pharma companies are businesses and just should focus on whatever gives them the greatest profit. How can companies balance this or isn't that, or maybe that's not even possible? I think it is possible, but, but one more time, I think it goes back to why corporations were created in the first place. Corporations were created by human beings to make our lives better. They work for us. We don't work for them. 
They should be serving us. And if you look at, at pharma, especially, pharma is there to create uh, medicines and, and drugs and procedures that help literally our physical body live better and live longer. When they fail at that cause and instead profit becomes their motive, then serving humanity and, and saving our lives and, and making our quality of life better becomes an afterthought. Right now, so many companies uh, focus money and effort on blockbuster drugs that you will take for the rest of your life, as opposed to antibiotics. There is a real dearth of antibiotics out there. There's a shortage of antibiotics and more and more, uh, more and more um, bacteria are becoming resistant to the antibiotics we do have. But there's no billions of dollars in antibiotics yet. It's all here, take a course for seven to 10 days and you're done, as opposed to here's something you take every day for the rest of your life. So I think that in America, especially, we focus on that. America is one of only three countries in the world that allows you to market pharmaceuticals directly to consumers. Everywhere else, they only advertise it to doctors because doctors are the ones who know what the benefit is to your body rather than just whatever the, 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 the advertising says it's, it's going to do for you. America spends twice as much on healthcare as other highly developed countries, and yet our life expectancy is two and a half years shorter. So I think we're getting a bum deal by focusing on the high profit pharmaceuticals as opposed to the ones that are good for human beings. I think people eat too healthy need to eat more cheesesteaks and clog up <laughs> those arteries that will block any of these infections from hitting you. Yeah. The more that's blocked up, the better you're going to go and do. I, I think there's a certain value to the advertising that pharma companies do, because mm -hmm. a lot of times you ask your doctor, like I heard this, would this be something that you think is good? I think in some ways it does educate the audience uh, about things that they don't really know much about, or at least can ask the doctor. Because sometimes the doctor said, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, I had not considered that, but maybe that's something we could look at. So I, I could see some of the positive, but you're right about for the most part, that's not necessarily why they're doing it. No, and, uh, and just, your... just, to, just to hop in real quickly there, I'm not saying to take away the marketing. I think in, an informed person uh, is, 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 is great for their own health and their own body for them to know what's going on. But the fact that big pharma spends more money on advertising than they do on R&D tells you a lot that they're more interested in extracting value and forcing people to the doctor to say, I need this, I need this, I need this to an overwhelmed doctor, as opposed to just educating them and having and encouraging a, a good decision of, is it right for you? Oh yeah, no question about it. Uh, what's your take on federal government spending, which is tax dollars on products in a variety of fields that are being commercialized? Is it enough to create jobs and pay taxes? Uh, look at the ridiculous cost of the EpiPen, which is just absurd. So yeah. what, what's your take on this? The EpiPen uh, went up sixfold in a matter of five years when they decide, when a company bought the patent for it and decided that they just wanted to get more money out of it uh, for no reason other than the market would bear it. If you look at your original question though, which is federal tax dollars go to fund medical research. And companies have access to that medical research for free. And then they can take it and they can patent a drug 
and make huge profits during the patent period on that drug based on research that they didn't even pay for. So again, getting research for free, I think that's a good thing. Again, I'm focused on what is good for humanity and what's good for American citizens. I would be in favor of pharmaceutical research that's freely available to any company out there, but they don't get a patent. It goes straight to the generic drug phase, which would allow multiple companies to compete, to bring down the cost of it so more people can benefit. I would argue that uh, taxpayers have already paid for part of that prescription through their tax dollars ahead of time. So I think that the point of that government research is to represent all of us and benefit all of us. CEOs in the 1980s used to make, and we were talking about this before we came on, right. 20 to 50 times what the average employee makes. Now we see numbers in the thousands, like Bob Iger making 1,424 times the average employee. Should there be a cap and the excess distributed to the employees or possibly the shareholders? Maybe more the employees than the shareholders. Yeah, um, I, I think CEO pay has just gotten ridiculous. Um, I don't think, uh, I, I think, uh, I forget the na her, her name, uh, Disney, uh, the, 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 the granddaughter of, 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 of Roy and, and Walt Disney said that Jesus Christ himself isn't worth 600 times the average employee. <laughs> what, what, what are they getting paid for? What are they doing that's worth so much money? Uh, but to me, it's not just amount, it's the compensation uh, structure that's the problem. Again, uh, starting in the 1980s, it was legal for companies to pay CEOs and, CEOs and other leadership in stock. Uh, companies make a great deal out of saying, well, our my CEO makes $1 in salary and it's all about shares because that drives future shareholder growth. But again, that's that's for shareholders. So it makes them more aligned with shareholder primacy and it makes their job to drive up the share price because their own compensation is based on share price. I think it's incredibly backwards. Um, I would be much more in favor of going to something that happened before 1970, which was you paid cash bonuses to, to, to executives but not just based on financial performance. I would love to see, and when I, when I look at the investments that I hold and I'm asked to vote on, on the, 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 the weigh in on the, the say on pay for, for leadership, I look to see, are they getting paid for hitting just financial metrics? Or are they also getting paid for diversity in the company, inclusion? How are they impacting their carbon footprint? Because again, these are things that, that human beings want. They don't want just money. So I think if you reward uh, CEOs and other executives for creating a truly balanced organism, fantastic. But if you're just saying, well, we're only going to pay you in shares and your job is to drive up share price, so your payout will be as big as possible, it's really no surprise that everybody else gets screwed. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, even like for you, and I hope it's not getting too personal, how did you align your own compensation as CEO of the company that you're in to kind of follow what, you, what your own thinking is? I, I think that you, you, you align your, your compensation to be based on how well 
the enterprise is doing. And you do need to use multiple metrics. Uh, in the internal world of HR, it was a big thing uh, many decades ago to start with 360 reviews so that the senior people aren't just reviewing the junior people, the junior people are also reviewing the senior people. And I think you can take a roll page from that and realize that it really does take input from all members of the ecosystem to realize how you're doing and that your compensation should be based on a broad set of metrics, not just financial profit. But how do the employees think you're doing? How do your neighbors think you're doing? Uh, if you've ever lived next door to a company that runs 24 seven, how do you feel about that? As well as how your investors, there's already a mechanism built into the market of a publicly traded company to say, well, this is how we think Ed Chambliss is doing as CEO. The share price goes up, the share price goes down, and it's an aggregate gut feel on how we think he's doing. But I think you need to look at all of those and, and base it more than just on that single metric. What companies are you think are really doing it well, and what CEOs are you impressed with? That's a really hard thing to say, because I think we're in an infancy now of CEOs and, and other executives realizing that the, the ecosystem is complex and they can't hide behind their walls anymore and the old rules don't apply. One thing I'm doing when I, I took three years to research and write this book because I had to go out there and really dig to find the CEOs and the other leaders who are trying their best to do this. And they're still making it up as they go along. And there's a lot of, of problems they're running into. And I think we're learning to do it together. I don't have a great example of someone who's nailing it right now, but I think those companies that are more transparent and those companies that are benefit corporations, if you're familiar with a B Corp, yeah, a B Corp uh, is a special type of chartered organization that puts out a public benefit report every year and says, here's how we're living up to our promise to benefit more than just shareholders. So I think you look at companies that are B Corps uh, those are the ones to really look at because they're making a public declaration that we're going to be about more than just profit. Here's a question from the audience. What, what do you think about the Supreme Court decision to allow corporations unlimited political spending as part of free speech? The Citizens United decision, I think, is is horrible for, for natural people like you and me. Um, people corporations were first made natural persons back in the 1880s out here in California when a railroad uh, sued the county saying you can't make me pay different tax rates than a natural person and comedy of errors that decision led to them being declared people and over the years, we've we've given them all the rights, a lot of rights that we have. They have freedom of speech. Uh, they have fair representation under the law. Most of the Bill of Rights apply to a corporation. And yet, corporations can be immortal. Corporations can easily be trillionaires. They, they, they're a huge mismatch for the rest of us. So I think that we're getting closer and closer to companies earning the right to vote which terrifies me that this child we created called a company or a corporation is sort of a teenager now. 
and it gets more and more responsibility and it's acting out a little bit. It's acting pretty selfishly. Another great example, in addition to Citizens United and, and the right to contribute unlimited amount of, of money to a campaign, it's a mismatch for most of us. There's no way we can contribute that much money. So the corporations can donate as much money to, to try and promote their interests. And as long as their interests are financially oriented, I think we're in a lot of trouble. I think an even bigger area for concern is is artificial intelligence and algorithmic decision making. Um, there's nothing inherently evil about AI or algorithmic or computers or any of that. I think the problem is is that machine based learning right now is being trained to do one thing. Uh, for those people who don't know a lot about machine based learning and AI, it's just a very fast computer that looks for the best way to get to a goal. And it's up to the user to define what good is, what a good outcome is. And most companies right now are defining good as profit and increased shareholder value. So we're training computers and AI to make profit. And there's no way we can compete with that. So I think we really need to have that intervention we talked about earlier, Mark, where we get together with our corporation and, and sit it down and say, this is not why you were created. This is not why we gave birth to you. You're here to help all of us, not just yourselves and the few people that are your CEOs and your shareholders. Less than 50% of Americans own any stock at all. So by definition, companies focused on shareholder value is not serving all of us. I, I think you know when they were aligning the uh, CEO's compensation with the stock, they thought, well, that's a really good idea because, hey, they're not going to think about themselves. And I think there was a part of it that said they're not going to think about the community either because they used to be CEOs of large companies like I grew up in Coatesville and Luke and Steel Company, that they would put a lot of money into the community mm -hmm. that shareholders who don't care about the community really find objectionable. And so maybe that the uh, depress the price of the stock as opposed to, hey, you know, your whole compensation is aligned with our interest and we don't care about other people's interests. We just care about our interests. And I guess for the cer certain extent, right, we're all in that same boat of looking at our retirement and saying, oh my God, I lost 30% of my retirement in right. the past six months uh, because the stock market has gone down and all we care about is got to get that thing back up there and we don't care how it gets there as long as it gets there. So it's a, it's a tough uh, discussion uh, to balance out your interest in humanity with what your personal needs are going to be down the road, right? Yeah, and, and, and the one thing that came out of this whole project of me researching and writing this book is that they are one in the same. That the contributions to community, the taking care of your employees, they create a more successful company because it's not just the shareholders that drive success. It's consumers, it's employees, it's, it's neighbors, it's citizens, all of us. I think if you look before 1970, when shareholder primacy first was, was voiced by um, Milton Friedman, you had 40 years between 1930 and 1970, the dominant uh, belief system for government was called managerialism. 
And it was the belief that leaders were there as caretakers or stewards of this company. And they were there to balance the competing interest of all the stakeholders. In the period of 1930 to 1970, saw America become a superpower, lead in innovation, uh, saw employee wages double, saw taxes go up, uh, tax revenue, not tax rate, tax revenue go through the roof. But investors also made, in the S&P 500, made a 6% annual return on investment. So it was benefiting everybody because the ecosystem was being supported on all the legs of the stool. And therefore, the stool worked even better. After 1970, we started focusing on efficiency and measured that efficiency on dollars and short-term shareholder value. And now, the investors are worried because the business isn't performing. Well, it's no surprise if you don't feed yourself, you're not going to have any energy to be productive. Yeah, you're right. And when you see Apple or any of these guys are seeing $200 billion in cash and you're thinking, oh, my God, you should be still hiring people and innovating, innovating every day. Yeah. And really, you haven't seen much innovation from Apple since Steve Jobs died. I no. mean, it's essentially the same product line. And you're wondering, where's the vision and where are the new ideas? Ed, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We thank the audience who have come in to listen to you. It's a terrific, good discussion book. You know, after you read it, you have good discussions and you're much more informed about things. So great job with the book. And I thank you and I wish you a good end of year and a happy new year. Uh, and um, for those of you who will be seeing, I'll be seeing you next week at our next program. Have a great day, everybody, and be safe. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.